Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Meninga. In this episode, I am live at the 2022 Theology Beer Camp with my friends Thomas Ord, Diana Butler-Bass, and Andrew Davis, where we talk about God and process theology. Thomas is a theologian, philosopher, and scholar of multidisciplinary studies. Diana is an award-winning author, popular speaker, inspiring preacher, and one of America's most trusted commentators on religion and contemporary spirituality. Andrew is program director of the Center for Process Studies. You can get connected with Thomas, Diana, and Andrew and their work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Hey, welcome everyone. Who is ready for the process party? Yeah! You know, it wouldn't be a process party if we weren't running at least three minutes late. So uh, we're excited for this. This is going to be a great conversation. Uh, We... Uh, well, actually, let me introduce myself first, and then we'll introduce our wonderful panelists. Uh, my name is Mason Menega. I host a podcast called A People's Theology, where I have interviewed two of these three incredible panelists. Uh, I'm guessing I'm going to have to interview. I'm going to have to interview the other happen. one. Uh, yeah, one of these things is not like the other. Um, we're, we're bunking together, by the way. That's how we know each. That's right. That's right. That's Just right. Yeah. So what we're going to do is a whole panel on. God and process theology, a small subject, right? Small subject, easy, easy to figure out. It shouldn't take more than 15 minutes. We'll get it all figured out soon. So uh, what we're going to do is uh, we'll introduce these wonderful panelists, uh, and then I'll get into my very first question, and we'll just have this great conversation uh, that we all do with the process party, right? All right, let's do it. Uh, so Tom, there's a lot of things you do in the world, but who is Tom Ord to Tom Ord? If you listen to my podcast, you know this question. <laughs> That's right. Uh, I'm Tom, Tom Ward. I direct the Center for Open and Relational Theology and also a doctoral program in Open and Relational Theology at Northwind Theological Seminary. I'll, I'll just add to that. For each one of you, what's a fun fact about you, too? Hmm. Okay. Go, Tom. I have a birthmark <laughs> in my armpit that looks like a third nipple. <laughs> That's what we're looking for right there. Top that, Diana. Top that, Diana. (laughs) (laughs) I cannot top that. (laughs) Oh, I'm Diana Butler-Bass, and sometimes I always wonder why I'm sitting at the process party table. Um, (laughs) I know why. (laughs) And um, I consider myself a sort of an accidental... Uh, process theologian uh, in certain ways. I'm a writer and um, do the historian. And I guess the best way to describe my relationship with process theology is that when I was 18 years old, I was a student at a place called Westmont College. And there was this incredibly annoying philosophy student who was two years older than me who was in several of my classes, and his name was Phil Clayton. Mm. (laughs) 
And so since we were 20 and 18, uh, Phil Clayton and I have been arguing, wondering, uh, tracking each other professionally, and we both basically got kicked out of the alumni list of Westmont So um, mm. because we're too weird theologically. <laughs> so, uh, and weird generally, too. <laughs> and weird generally. So, so anyway, my... My relationship with process theology is interesting because I was trained as a historian and I sort of just came to panentheism and process. And people tell me I write about it all the time in a popular way, but please do not ask me for a whitehead quote because I cannot give you one. <laughs> Somebody didn't do their homework. <laughs> and I guess uh, weird facts, weird facts. I don't have any weird facts. I'm sorry. That's a lie. Haven't I given you enough already? You're my theological mom. I am your theological mom. We'll There's read, that. We'll read your books. Oh, that's, that's okay. <laughs> Andrew. Yeah, so who's I'm, Andrew Davis to Andrew Davis? And what's a weird fact about you? Okay, cool. Yeah, so Andrew Davis, I lead research and program development at the Center for Process Studies, which is a faculty research center of Claremont School of Theology. We're turning 50 next year. <laughs> and stay tuned for more info. We're going to have a big conference in... February, the 50th. These two of would remember when it was created. Yeah. Us two don't. <laughs> so, so uh, oh my. <laughs> Thank you, Mason. <laughs> Believe it or not, the founder of CPS, at least one of them, John Cobb, will be there. He's 98 years old. Wow. Yeah. So, metaphysics may be good for your health. So, Cobb's a, uh, an advocate. The fun fact I would say is related to Phil Clayton. So Diana and I were just talking. They had an early connection. It turns out I did too. So Phil Clayton not only is from Santa Rosa, my hometown, he went to the same high school as my parents. And when I was in my MA program at Claremont, I found out that my grandmother was his youth leader and he was in my house with his little curly hair as a young tyke. So he also uh, was on the, he was on my dissertation committee and, and gave me help for the defense. <laughs> it was sort of hazing, but interesting connection with Clayton. So yeah. Wonderful per person, too. So, All right, first question. Uh, earlier today, I was running around uh, Theology Beer Camp and was asking different people, what is a question you want to hear during the process party? And then there was this guy that came up to me and said, hey, I've got a question for you. Um, my question is, what is process theology? And this guy happened to be Trip Fuller. So if you could give an introduction <laughs> to a guy named Trip Fuller who has no idea what process theology is, clearly, could you give him a little quick introduction? Each one of you, what would you say process theology is? There, there's many... There, okay. All right, Trip. There's many definitions of process thought. Here's one way to think about it. A process thinker, a process theologian is somebody who sees becoming as more fundamental than being and reads that all the way down in nature and all the way up. Ooh. Okay. I would say the process theology centers creativity as an aspect of the divine and the mo probably the most significant of way in which human beings are made in the image of God. Mm. Wow. Those are all great. Uh, it is a contested term. <laughs> if I had to give a basic thumbnail sketch, I would say that process theology believes all things are in the flow of time, including God. Mm. Okay. Nice. And Tom, why are you a process theologian? <laughs> 
Uh, he asked me that question because I consider myself an open and relational theologian, <laughs> and I don't usually self-identify as process thought in a process thinker. In part because so you're only invited to the process party until like 11 o'clock, and then you, have, you get booted out. <laughs> We're the chaperone, yep. Um, yeah, I come from an evangelical background and still operate in those circles. And in those circles, uh, being a process thinker is like being the Antichrist. In fact, all day today on my, uh, on my Facebook feed, I've been being bombarded by people who say open and process thought are of the devil, et cetera, et cetera. So um, they have yeah. no comments about your your shoes and how you wear New Balances. <laughs> well, a few did. Okay. Uh, so uh, because of the lack of definition amongst John Cobb, David Griffin, some of the key process thinkers, uh, I decided it would make a lot of sense if I came up with my own term, and so that's where open and relational came in. But I would put it this way. Open and relational is an umbrella under which process theologies fit. And they affirm both the relationality of God and the ongoingness of time such that the future is open both to God and to us. See, Tom, we would say that process thought is an umbrella under which open relational (laughs) theology fits. But all relationships are mutual for process thought anyway. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) that's right all right we're gonna go to the softball question uh if we're gonna have a whole conference about experiencing god a lot of times we all have this common definition definition or assumption of what god is but the thing is is each each one of you probably have a different understanding of god and each one of us here probably have a different understanding of god and so when we start talking about experiencing god we automatically are going to have problems because we all have different definitions or different understandings of God. So I'm curious how each one of you understand God, given what you understand about process theology or open and relational theology. I, I, I'll go. Um, a few years ago, I was on John Fuglesang's show on Sirius XM. We got the high rollers over here. <laughs> well, the reason why I bring that up is that that's where most of my life takes place. It takes place on, you know, podcasts and radio shows and in newspapers and places where people don't have any kind of technical vocabulary about theology. And so I was on this show with, with, with John, and he was interviewing me about my book, Grounded. And he said, there's something that I really need to ask you, and that is, how do you understand God? I mean, he literally asked this question, and I thought oh my gosh, you know, how am I supposed to frame this? And the thing that came out of my mouth was something that I knew that I deeply held to be true. And that was, I I looked at him and I said, John, you know how when you read a beautiful sentence and you come to the end of it, the words are gone and there's only silence left? And he went, yeah. I said, that, that's how I understand God. Mm. And um, that's, that's it for me. And I think that, that that understanding fits within open relational process <laughs> theology. Because <laughs> it, it's, and the interesting thing was, is John went, 
that's it. Mm-hmm. And we had this moment of complete sort of mystery and, and silence on John's incredibly snarky radio show. And mm-hmm. he has never forgotten that. He comes back to me frequently and re-quotes it to me. Mm-hmm. And I went, wow, I didn't realize that that was a definition that really... And, and that really works with him, too, as a create. He's a creative, obviously. And, and so I think that a lot of creative people are attracted to uh, process and panentheist thought. And it's because of those realities um, about... The nature of God. Mm-hmm. No, it wouldn't be theology if we didn't get a man's opinion about the God. So let's hear. Yeah, it. Of course, of course. So, so I heard you asking in part for a definition of God. That's what I heard there, mm-hmm. um, and connecting it to experience. So one thing I'll say is that I've listened to a lot of the talks here in, over the last few days, and every single definition or every single statement about experience of God has had recourse more fundamentally to the experience of value might be aesthetic value, might be moral value, ethical value, rational value. Value, I think, and, and experience of God are inescapable. Now, I think value is a problem. I think there's real objective values that are in the nature of things, but they're not floating in a void. I think they need a locus, and the locus is divine. So here's the definition I would offer, and if you were in the session the other day, um, I offered this one as well. Definitions are idolatrous, of course, so I know I'm not offering the definition, but here's what I'd say. God is the infinite circumambient reality in whom we live and move and have our being and becoming and by whom truth, beauty, and goodness are rendered causally efficacious as the towering telos of all cosmic and creaturely pursuits. Did you get that down? <laughs> That's one way to There's going to be a quiz tomorrow. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Thank you. I like the the element you... of value was included there. I hope that you didn't miss that. <laughs> I like the way you close your eyes like it was a prayer, perhaps, even. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Carrie, got it. <laughs> I think uh, when I think about my own journey to think about God and divine experiences of God, I think back to when I was younger and I was told that God was everywhere, always acting, and I had a kind of determinist view that God does everything in the world, so I should believe, according to that view, that everything that happens to me is caused by God. Everything that happens in the world is caused by God, which was really great when you're on the mountaintop, but caused questions about suffering and evil. And so the way... I tried to deal with that was to bracket God out only for the good. So I'm trucking along in my life, doing my own thing. It's just me and the other world. God's out there. And if I pray, if I'm at church camp, I go to the altar, God's going to zip down occasionally and I'll have an experience of God. That way of thinking sort of bracketed God out of most of my life and most of the world. I think what process theology offers is the possibility that God is always with us, back to what I believed when I was younger, but never in a controlling way. And every experience I have has some kind of divine input, but some experiences do not reflect well what God wants or calls me to be in that moment. So to have an experience of God is never that God zipped in from out there to make sure this particular thing happened and that was just God. All my experiences are 
are, are, are interconnected with other natural causes, including my own desires, etc. But those occasions that I, we often identify as the God moments are one in which creation, myself, cooperate with God in some dramatic way that makes me think, that's beautiful, that's lovely, that's excellent, that's just, whatever. Mm-hmm. So I was just going to say, if I can, I think that's a beautiful way of saying that process ORT thought assumes a sacramental cosmos. Mm. So a sacrament in the tradition is something under, in, and through which the reality of God is known. So to have an experience of God is never an unmediated experience. Right. It's, it's tangled in every relationship there is in the cosmos. I think that's an important point not to, not to miss. So if you're looking for you know definitive experience of God, you have to look for the complexities of all that you're experiencing. Look for the deeper dimensions, intimations of transcendence, if you want, that are there. Anyway. That was when I told the story about my experience in the Quaker meeting house. I used the word liminal experience to describe it. And that sounds like a good seminary word. It is a good seminary word. I do know a few. Um, and um, the I've always loved the theory of liminality. You know, there's this this space between the spaces and uh, Victor Turner's work in trying to figure out how religions ritually recreate the liminality within them in order to introduce adherents and members uh, to divine, to the divine and to a deeper sense of of God's presence in their lives. Um, So so there is this concept in sociology and anthropology that historians borrow very broadly. Uh, But I, I don't know how much it was noticed in the talk that I gave, but I made a little kind of throwaway statement that, and this is, I think, the process piece, is that I think that liminality is around us all the time. Mm. And so, so while I agree with Victor Turner's kinds of definitions, I don't know that you need particular rituals to do anything other than train your eyes to mm. see what is mm-hmm. the reality of of the thinness of the veil um, in which we constantly live, move, and have our being. And so in that sense, the universe is sacramental. And that's another way of talking about it, um, the idea of constant, ongoing liminality is what surrounds us. Mm. Nice. Mm -hmm. You know, for a lot of us here, when we debate our Calvinist friends, it's like playing t-ball. It's the easiest thing, right? Uh, in terms of like why like how we understand god why why we understand god the way we do the harder thing that i've experienced is when i start to encounter my atheist friends and i'm like okay from a process perspective this is why i still think god is something that needs uh to be metaphysically real if you will can you talk a little bit about why god why is god in your uh, metaphysical system. Why do you believe in God from a per- process perspective? Um, I think that's a, a little bit more of a challenging conversation um, because I can certainly easily make debates about why I don't think God exists if God is all powerful, blah, 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 right? But I think a process perspective, it's a little bit more nuanced and it's a little bit more hard to argue at times. But why do you think God exists from your process perspective? You looking to me first? Go for it. Yeah, you guys okay. can go. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
one of the wonderful statements process thought makes immediately, and I think it's one of the most revolutionary ideas. It's not at all new. It's part of ancient traditions, but it's basically the claim that, that you're not an exception to everything that's going on. You're an exemplification of everything that's going on. And that allows you to look to your experience to, and, and then generalize from it, again, all the way back and all the way up, up in nature. So Whitehead raises the question, and I, the question was raised for me, how is experience possible? Why do new things happen? What is the ground of the possible? Where does novelty come from? Where are values? These are all real things, and arguably we assume them, even if we theoretically deny them, even the, even the atheist. Right? So people easily dismiss God when they picture God as this barbaric power. People are not so easily a dismissive of love, truth, beauty, and goodness. But the tradition, not just the process tradition, the larger tradition has always connected those to someone, something, and maybe someone in the nature of things. So I um, began to really appreciate in graduate school the deep metaphysical problems surrounding why there should be anything and how novelty is possible in the locus of value. And I have come to see that those things are the noetic content of a divine mind that includes me but also transcends me. Uh, so God is a response to uh, certain metaphysical problems, and then the connection to experience would be, can that metaphysical response, can you find it in your experience? Um, because I think if you don't find it in your experience, then you're just the armchair philosopher in some sense. And Whitehead certainly argued against that. Uh, metaphysics deals part and parcel with human experience in its fullness. And, and we're going to book note your personal experience in particular. So... Next question, we'll, we'll, okay. we'll talk about that. But for you two, why do you believe in God from a process perspective? You know, I, I don't ever use the language of belief about God. Hmm. Uh, and I'm, I'm not entirely sure why that is. Um, maybe I'm, I, I still get sort of tripped up on the idea that belief is primarily about intellectual propositions and it involves some sort of assent in that way and so when people are ask, you saying you're non-creedal <laughs> you can put it on twitter <laughs> the, the people who follow me on twitter know how much i constantly get in trouble for that um but um what i would do it, what I would say instead is that I, I trust God. So I don't believe in God, simply trust God. And that means, in, in effect, that I, as a, as a writer and as a poet... I, that word beyond the end of the sentence, that silence beyond the end of the sentence, that just exists. And somehow I trust that space, that silence. And that's what I refer to and understand to be God, manifested then in the word. Mm -hmm. um, and so... And the Book of Common Prayer, because you're a good Episcopalian. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, uh, well, we won't go there, because I don't want that on Twitter, too. <laughs> but I, but I, have, I have pretty, I mean, when I think about God, I think primarily about poetry. Mm -hmm. I don't think about historical theories or, or philosophy or even theology. I think about poetry. 
and that's that's where it takes me. And and I interestingly enough, my very best friend is an atheist, and we have these conversations all the time. And I think she has, in some senses, better arguments uh, for morality, beauty, the problem of evil, all kinds of stuff than I do. Um, but ultimately, I keep going back to that poetic silence, and I trust that as being necessary to the creativity and compassion of the cosmos. Mm. So that's really, that's my answer to the question. Mm. You know, God, or a whitehead called God, the poet of the world. Mm -hmm. Oh, see there, I didn't know that whitehead quote, but now I have one. And there you go. (laughs) (laughs) Write that one down. God does not create the world, God saves the world. God is, what does he say? Uh, With tender patience, the poet of the world, leading it by his vision of truth, beauty, and goodness. There's that element of value again. This is why Phil always tells me that I'm an accidental process thinker. There you go. (laughs) Wow, I had no idea. I love that quote. That's it. That's I believe that. Or I trust that. (laughs) (laughs) I would say process theology, open relational theology, has the number one best answer to the greatest challenge of theism. And the number one best, greatest answer to the biggest challenge to atheism. The biggest challenge to theism is the problem of evil. If there's a powerful and loving God, then why does genuine evil occur? And process theology, open relational theology, my books have said, God simply can't single-handedly prevent the evils of the world. God didn't set them up that way. God's not to blame. I don't know of any other theological tradition that has such a clear, straightforward answer. However, there's another problem that's rarely addressed, and it's the problem of good. Why is there so much good in this world, too? Beauty, order, Mm -hmm. giftedness, altruism. If you're an atheist and you don't think there's an ultimate ground for that goodness... That's a real problem. And so you have to come up with evolutionary reasons or other kinds of possibilities to make sense of that. Process theology says, hold on. We may think God is not in control, but we do think there's a God who's the source of those values, as Andrew was saying. So when you've got a theology that solves the biggest objection to theism and the biggest objection to atheism, yeah, I would recommend that theology. (laughs) (laughs) I would, too. That's why we're at the process party. (laughs) Uh, so, Tom, I was going to say I really appreciate that. That my friend, who's the atheist, we've never had that discussion. Why is there so much good in the world? No. And I literally think she has no answer. I think she has asked that question and without really asking it, and has no answer for it. Mm-hmm. So, so anyway, thank you. That's a really, really great observation. I think it's important just to say too. Like I, I like atheists. I like atheism because I think I, it, I see it as this kind of holy apophaticism. Right, so it's mm-hmm. it's a righteous thing to do to reject images of God that need to be rejected, because right. in doing so you clear the way for something more authentic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so they might not like to be called apophaticists in that way, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but uh, but there's the atheist moment or phase or decades that is important for people, and sometimes rejection clears the way for affirmation, but it's a process that takes time. Yeah. 
Besides atheists, are usually more fun than fundamentalists. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Andrew, you brought up a point earlier about your experience of God and that really mattering to how you understand God. Mm-hmm. So for each one of you, how do you experience God in the world? I would imagine, I, I can guess from what you do in the world, what you might think, and certainly knowing what you do in the world, I can have a guess of what you might think. But I'm just curious, how do you experience God in the world? Maybe from day to day or you know, what, whatever those moments are. Um, I just got back from a couple weeks ago, I went to a f- music festival. It's in those moments where I'm like stage diving and running around and being a, a, a hooligan. That's when I experience God in the world. Yeah. Well, how do you experience God in the world? So music's a form of aesthetic value. And it's about life in the mode of pure feeling. And I think God can be mediated through the venue of sound. And I have ambitions to write a sonic theology later in life, which would be mm-hmm. fun. Oh, wow. But again, I'd point to value. Um, they're not always obvious, but they're always presupposed. There's elements of moral beauty right, that are in the nature of things. Whitehead says, you know, aesthetic value is deeper than moral value. Right? It's the widest possible value that's applicable to the universe and in human forms, that's where the moral ethic comes from. It's about a beautiful life. So I experience or attempt to attune myself to deeper dimensions of value that are always part and parcel of my assumptions and my experience. I think that's where God is. God's in that value. It's not always obvious. It's not always domineering, but it's subtle and it's there and it's the ground of my being. I think the world exists because it's good that it should and it's ultimately beautiful and beauty is good. And goodness can be a reason for being even the reason for God's being. But that's a different story. My dissertation's in the back. <laughs> Shameless, selfless plug. It's half off, man. Actually, someone just bought it. Sorry. <laughs> so the, the prism of value. Mm. I think that's where God's to be found, or at least investigated. Yeah. Um, I actually did write a whole book on this. <laughs> Grounded, Finding God in the World hmm. um, was the title of the book. And uh, it was a great project to work on because I simply, in effect, walked around the, my own life and paid attention. And uh, the book is divided up into two parts, Finding God in Nature and Finding God um, with My Neighbors. And so that's, that's, for me, the locus of experience. Mm. It's in the, the natural world and in the human-built world of relationships and communities. And, and you know, what else is there? Mm. That's, 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 grounded is Diana the panentheist completely coming out of the closet. So, <laughs> yeah. Nice. <laughs> Welcome to the process party, Diana. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I earlier said I think I experience God moment by moment, but when you ask where my experience of God, I'm guessing you're asking something about like peak moments or particularly profound or dramatic. It could, could literally might be on a peak too that sometimes you, <laughs> go, you go up go. to. Yes, yeah, so yeah. We've seen Often. some photographs of that. Actually. Yeah, Mason is hinting that I, I spend a lot of time in nature and do a lot of photography, and that's a, a, a very important nude hiking on occasion too. I do do yeah. it nude sometimes. Anyway. Yes. Um, You've got a calendar, just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Just sold a copy. (laughs) Sorry, Tom. Um, But I think I want to talk about sex. 
Uh, All right. See, <laughs> that's why I said that, everybody. <laughs> I mean, and I want to qualify it. I feel God's presence in great sex. I've not always had great sex. Uh, maybe mm-hmm. some of you have always had great sex. I'm not in that camp. They some haven't. They haven't. <laughs> so what's happening when I'm having great sex? Well, there's a really intimate moment with my wife, my partner. There is orgasm, which is usually the most powerful element, but there are other elements of the sexual experience that if they're positive, I have this deep connection, this vulnerability, this intimacy, this both desire and also trying to satisfy the desires of my lover. Um, this relationality stuff that goes on in sex that hopefully will have a peak orgasm is a kind of ecstatic experience in which I think, in which, oh God, is actually appropriate. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we were all thinking that already. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's very explicit. But it can't be reduced simply to God, and we know that in the midst of the, of the ecstasy. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, sex, that's really important to me. So you won't say you're a process theologian, but you're going to be totally fine with telling everybody about your sex life? (laughs) (laughs) What's going on here, Tom? Sexologist. (laughs) (laughs) Like Dr. Ruth over here. (laughs) There was a reason why undergrads called me Dr. Love. (laughs) This is being recorded, right? (laughs) This is being recorded, yes. You're going to drop the OnlyFans link, too? (laughs) Hiker's gone wild. (laughs) Uh, So, uh, do you have some? No, I was just thinking it sounded like uh, reading uh, medieval mystical theology written by nuns, except for the fact that they were just talking about Jesus. They weren't talking about about a real person they were married to. Okay. This episode of A People's Theology is brought to you by United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. Are you considering exploring your faith more deeply, or are you called to ministry but haven't found a seminary that is quite right for you? When you come to United, you join a community that is intentionally open, socially aware, and theologically adventurous. United's passion is equipping leaders to make real, lasting change in the world through their many different degree programs. Whether your vocation is in faith leadership, nonprofit leadership, academia, the arts, activism, or social entrepreneurship. And the best news is you don't have to uproot your life to attend seminary. United offers maximum flexibility to fit your schedule. Attend on campus or online, part-time or full-time. Their leading distance learning technology allows students to be active in the classroom and engaged with the United community. Want to learn more? Visit unitedseminary.edu forward slash a people's theology or click the link in the episode description and receive a $1,000 scholarship when you apply and are admitted. United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, training leaders to dismantle systems of oppression, care for the spiritual needs of a multi-faith world, and push the boundaries of theology. So one of the things that I'm really curious about uh, with process theology and somebody who's also really interested in liberation theology is what does process theology have to offer liberation theology? As you can clearly see, all of us up here are white. 
But I do think there is something to say that process theology has something to offer liberation theology and liberation movements um, to do just work in the world. And I, I think there, I truly believe that. And so I'm curious what your perspectives are around that. So whoever wants to take that. I think liberation theology provides sort of the, a, a pathway um, to active participation in the justice of God. Mm. And so, you know, sometimes if, you're th- if you think about process theology, you think about co-creating with God, think about co-creating justice, well, how do you do that? Well, you need to learn to hear the stories of marginalized people. You need to hear voices that come from other parts of the cosmos that you don't necessarily live in. And you need to be able... I, I think that liberation theology, one of its real strengths, is about organization of communities and the power of protest and all of those different things. So I think it really shows a pathway of creative justice-making. Yeah, what I want to say really fits nicely with what Diana just said. I think one of the criticisms of process theology from those in the liberation community is, your God's a puny God. Mm-hmm. We need a God to come in and rip us out of here. We're not, we can't do anything. We want a coercive act, God, to rescue us. Mm. And your process, God, doesn't provide that. Right. Um, and so what Diana says is that a process liberation perspective says the liberation inco- includes our cooperation in this process. And those who are waiting around to single-handedly rescue them, well, you've seen how that's kind of turned out. It rarely happens, or I don't think ever happens. But, um, and so this is a realistic liberation theology, which requires divine action and creaturely response. And that, to me, makes a lot more sense. Because if God has the power to liberate people single-handedly, God's asleep on the job. So Tom and I were speaking at lunch about this. Of course, you all know that he's written on the problem of evil. Years ago, David Griffin used the language of negative revelation and associated with horrific events, Holocaustal events. So these events are a negative revelation to the extent that they reveal the ways in which God cannot and won't act. And yet we're not paying attention. We still get furious at them, rightly so. But there's an element of that there. The other side of the negative revelation is something positive, I think, that this co-creative means of, of addressing oppression. So the God of process thought is that element in the nature of things which releases destructive patterns into something new. The ground of the possible, right? John Hott, Elia Delio talk about futurity, like Tehard in a deep sense too, coming at you from the future with possibilities that are not inherent in your past so that you can transcend the destructive patterns. So I think that's, that fits very nicely in a liberationist framework. Some people have done work on Gustavo Gutierrez and process thought. You know, more work needs to be oh. done. Mm-hmm. But metaphysics are important to the movements of liberation theology as well. Yeah. And that, I don't think, has always been appreciated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I agree. Well, speaking along those lines, clearly, clearly there are process theologians and process people who are coming from those communities that have, talk, have talked about these uh, types of issues that are happening within their communities uh, and coming with it uh, with a process, a process perspective. Can you talk a little bit about who some of those people are so people who are listening uh, can make note of those people and start reading their books right now? Yeah, I'll just point out just quickly Monica Coleman's book, Making a Way Out of No Way, and that's a really brilliant way of putting in layman's terms what I was trying to get at. 
God's that element in the nature of, thing that makes a, nature of things that makes a way out of no way. And she applies that to black and womanist feminist theology um, in some really beautiful ways. Her work continues. And she has an amazing story herself where she's digging into her own experience um, and finding that at work. And that's a challenge to do. You know, if we tune ourselves to our experience, can we find an element of novelty breaking in? Where does it come from? Good question. Maybe it's divine. I think that's what process thought is saying in some sense. Mm-hmm. So Coleman is one example that I've really appreciated. Claremont now is at Chicago. Where is she currently? Delaware. 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 Yeah. Oh, Thanks, wow. Mom. I didn't know she was yeah. there. Yeah. Uh, Grace earlier talked about the Korean concept of Han, mm. a mm-hmm. process open relational thinker named Andrew Sung Park, kind of brought that to, I think, the awareness of most people in the U.S., in a process kind of perspective. So if you're interested in Han and what a process response to that would be, Andrew Sung Park's work would be good mm-hmm. to yeah. look into. The folks There's that come to your mind, Diana, as well? I was actually thinking of Grace. Mm. I don't know that she would refer to herself as a process theologian, but her work on the Holy Spirit and the way that she understands mm-hmm. the cosmos and human nature and mm-hmm. um, experience, I think that it feeds certainly into this whole question. And it actually, there are parts of Grace's work that remind me very much of Monica Coleman's yeah but coming from the Asian-American feminist mm-hmm. perspective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, hey, Grace. Mm-hmm. Somewhere. No, she's not here. Actually, I think she just headed to the airport. So, oh, yeah. I just gave her, catching gave a her uh, credit. Maybe she's another one of those accidental process people with me. Yeah. <laughs> There's a few of you. I'll just add uh, Dr. Roberto Henderson Espinoza, who just uh, spoke oh, a little earlier. I was thinking of him, too. Uh, yeah, very, very processy and also really, obviously, um, very active in liberationist movements as well. So um, there's certainly a number of other folks, but those Lots are the... Lots of others, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Those are a few of the people that come to mind. Yeah, that's great. Um, kind of one of my last questions, and we might have time to open it up to some of you who are, are part of the process party as well. Um, so, so many people who are here and might be listening are like, all right, all the new ideas about God... I've been getting at Theology Beer Camp. These are great ideas. I've never thought about God in these ways. But now they're like, now what? What, what do I do? What do I do with this, right? Uh, and th- this is the youth pastor in me who wants the <laughs> practical application. So they've heard all these great ideas about God of process theology. What do they do? What, what should they do? What's the practical application? What, what is next for them? Read, read Tom's books. No. <laughs> I would say, you know, you get a lot in, in these last few days. And there's no way you can uh, digest it all. So give yourself some grace. Give yourself some time. See if you can begin to get a sense for the kind of universe we're imagining. Um, Whitehead has a lot of technical language. Um, and it's a turnoff for a lot of people. And so I'm teaching a course on Whitehead now, and one of the things I said immediately was, my interest is not in you mastering the language, even the concepts. That's not necessarily important right now. That comes with time, reading and thinking. But see if you can begin to feel what this kind of universe would be like, where you're co-creating yourself and others, where values are entering and grounding who you are at every moment. And there's practices in some sense, various spiritual practices that would help you begin to feel what that might be like. Because I fully agree, there's a lot that's coming at you. So give yourself some time to digest it. That would be my recommendation. 
I, I immediately thought of some spiritual practices as well. Um, certainly, contemplation, I think, is a core practice uh, around process theology uh, because it allows the future and the past and the present reality to all enter into the silence. Mm. And so contemplation uh, functions as a way of clearing the clutter of the immediate moment and all of the stuff that you've got going on in your brain and allows that other reality to wrap you within it. And so, so a lot of the people, some of the people who are mentioned here are, are, are people who I think of as contemplatives. Ilya Delio, you know, I mean, that's the great, great recommendation. Uh, yeah, I think Richard Rohr is pretty processy. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't necessarily out and out call himself that. And uh, Brian McLaren, to talk about somebody who's influenced by, uh, I, mm-hmm. I, I think you know this, you're good, mm-hmm. you and Brian are really good friends. Um, and so all these people are contemplatives um, as well. So contemplation, meditation, um, uh, the simplest version of that that I use in my own life is walking the labyrinth, um, that prayer, prayer path that you can walk in and out of. It's about a quarter mile in, quarter mile out. And uh, lots of churches now have labyrinths as well as different kind of wellness centers, places like that. So anything that is a tool or practice that reminds you that there's more than just what is occupying this, cluttering the present moment and can can take you to a different location and, and time, really. So those are things that I definitely think about, those spiritual practices, really help me. Mm. Process open relational thought is not limited to Christianity. That's correct. Muslims, Hindus, Baha'i, people who don't identify with any religious tradition who call themselves open and relational or process. I happen to be a Christian. And I believe that open and relational theology makes the best sense of the Bible than any other theology I know. Mm-hmm. Now that's going to sound to some of you like the weirdest thing you've ever heard. This is supposed to be a liberal panel with these people who have long left the Bible behind, but we haven't. Nah. The Bible makes a lot more sense if God is moving through time, saving, responding, forgiving, creating. The God of classical theism is outside of time, timeless. None of that responsiveness that we find in Scripture makes any sense to that kind of God. The God who's relational is a God whose love is not just giving but also receiving, who's angry when we hurt each other and proud of us when we help each other. Mm -hmm. The God of the Bible, I don't want to say everything in the Bible fits perfectly with process and open relational thought because I don't think the Bible is that kind of book, but the majority of Scripture fits an open and relational process perspective. So my practical suggestion is read the Bible through a process lens. And by the Bible, you mean process and reality? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Trip had the shirt on earlier. <laughs> oh, you know, our practices, I can't even believe I didn't mention it, because both of you said it, um, is that the sacramental life mm-hmm. is actually, I think, the, uh, the most uh, sort of best gift 
that the church gives to people to experience a process at theology. And, of course, in that, the table, the, the Eucharist itself, is a primary practice of, of process theology. We were laughing a little bit about the trouble I get in on, on Twitter but one of the things that I am just on fire about that loses me followers and gains me followers all the is sword time. drills? Is that what it is? <laughs> <laughs> you know this one, Mason, is my absolute passion for open communion. Mm, and I have been furious at my own church, the Episcopal Church, which is on the edge of, of creating pro- closed communion. And it's a whole bunch of basically young Calvinist ministers who somehow got to be Episcopal priests. Um, (laughs) I was not on those committees. Go ahead, Mason, tweet this away. Um, (laughs) Who are are mostly ex-PCA or ex-Missouri Synod Lutheran ministers who discovered that they liked gay people, so they basically looked around for a new denomination, and they said, oh, look, the Episcopal Church, it has nice robes, and they like gay people, so I'm going to go over there. But what they're doing is carrying this very, this Reformed theology that's the exact sort of opposite of process into the Episcopal Church, and they're now arguing for closed communion. When the openness of the table, the image of the table, to me, is one of the central sort of iconic metaphors mm. uh, for the life of process. Mm. And, and, and as, a, as, as a writer and as a person who treasures poetry, I mean, the table is it. I mean, that's the, mm. the table is, is the earthly icon mm. of the thing that we're trying to, to describe here. Mm. And so the more it is open... The, the the closer we are, I think, mm-hmm. to 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 God, and to be part of a denomination now that's having an argument over closed communion, I I I am out of breath even thinking about how evil it is. Those mm-hmm. bastards. Yeah, really. Thank you. <laughs> it's hard for me to swear. I was born in 1959. Oh, okay. It's really just tough, but. Yeah, I, I, I don't like them very much. Fair enough. <laughs> hey, as long as they're still only using ju- grape juice, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> they should be using That's right, jo- Tom, right? Beer. As long as they're using grape juice, it doesn't matter. <laughs> That's right. Uh, I think, do we, do we uh, is Tripp around? Do we, do we have time for one more question? Yes. Let's do, we got a question over here. Just yell it out. I'll re- yell in the mic. <laughs> it was. A, I didn't enter into last week's debacle on Twitter about that. Yeah. So my question is, how do we protect this open communion? Like, it's in particular life. How do we protect this open communion while also requiring a gospel that requires change from our people?
So the, the question is, is how can we keep this open communion, but also still ask for change for people? Because ultimately, sometimes change needs to happen in a person. Is that, is that good? Okay. Go ahead, guys. Uh, I mean, this is, you both are ordained, correct? I'm not ordained. But all I would say is that this, there, theology is important here. Um, if God is the ground of change and we want change in people and God is also open, this gives you a framework to begin thinking about an open communion. Anyway, that, I mean, you all can speak to that in much more practical ways because I've not administered communion or, or uh, been involved in that way. That's exactly where I, I would take it uh, in a more face-to-face form, not just in, you know, on Twitter. But, the, but if you're talking open and relational theology, you're talking panentheism, God is everywhere, you're talking about the openness of process, co-creating the universe, you're, you're already talking about open communion. You're, and you're already experiencing open communion. See, that's the thing. So your language was still protecting and requiring. My, my theory of life is you do it and then you ask permission later mm-hmm. or you just do it and you don't even ask permission. You just let the change come in the wake of the, actual, of the action. And so the creative living into openness around a table um, in contemplation, in community, in conversation, in the exploration of the Bible and the writing of theology, all of that just begins to push the whole system and structure into that direction of openness and creativity itself. I think the most powerful change agent we have available is not the power of coercion and requirements because any kind of transformation, quote transformation, that's going to bring about is imposed. It's the example of open-handedness, love, invitation. And what that means is sometimes you get trampled by the people who want to do the coercing. But that's really in the long run the only thing that truly transforms and brings about the kind of change I think you want. The only other thing I'll just add, if I can, uh, is that one of the things I love about process theology is that the end has not already been written. And uh, in the words of our, uh, some of us know who Andre Henry is, and he has this great, uh, great quote where it doesn't have to be this way. And that's literally because the end has not been written, right? And so whether it's in each one of these people's lives, whether it's in our lives, whether it's going on in the world, uh, whether it's racism, sexism, homophobia, climate change, the end hasn't been written. And there's another way possible. And I think process theology offers another way that's possible. So that would be my answer to that. Nice. nice game. Beautiful. Nice yeah. Mason wins. <laughs> Ultra call. I don't want to say that this concludes the process, the process party, but this concludes the process party. Can we give another round of a hand for our friends? If you'd like to connect with Thomas, Diana, and Andrew and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast 
at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mesa Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates. Thank you.